So today I'm going to talk about the Heart Sutra, which is uh, one of my favorite sutras. And it's only a one page long. It's not long at all. Let me get my view here, uh, gallery view. Okay. It's only one page long, but it has a whole lot of information. And I could have gone a lot of different ways with this, but I'm going to keep it simple because that's how I work. And so I'm going to talk about ultimate and relative, absolute and relative. And the Heart Sutra has a lot to say about that. And so um, we can start off with the Maha Prajna Paramita Heart Sutra, the Great Wisdom Sutra. Now, it comes from an even bigger sutra, and this is the heart of the, the sutra, the Prajna Paramita. And it starts off with Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. Now, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva is the Bodhisattva of compassion. And what I found interesting about doing a little research on Avalokiteshvara is before around the 12th century, Avalokiteshvara had many arms and hands and tools to reduce our suffering. And then the Christian missionaries found their way to the East. And all of a sudden, Avalokiteshvara transformed into a woman, very much looking like the Virgin Mary. And, and I thought, isn't that an interesting transformation? And aren't we happy that the Christians were over there? And so rather than having a lot of arms, it's a beautiful representation of a woman with great compassion who, wants, who hears the cries of the world and wants to reduce and end the suffering. So Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, and practicing deeply the perfect wisdom, clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty and pass beyond all suffering. Now we're going to get to the five skandhas, but I like the idea that the Buddha never said we're one thing. There's no Joe or Mary, and Joe and Mary are not simply one thing, but we're at least two things, name and form, nama rupa. In some cases, we're the 32 parts of the body. In some cases, we're the five skandhas, or the five heaps is sometimes referred to. And so it's never one thing. So it's always more than one. It's always relative. It's never the ultimate. Now, in preparing for this talk, I wanted to see how computers talk to each other. And computers have a rather simple language. They have zeros and ones. So I'm going, okay, zeros and ones. Now, could we put one as everything, like the one God or the one country or the one this or the one that? Could one represent everything and then the zero represent nothing or emptiness? And so if we can get our heads wrapped around that, we can say, yeah, you know, we can use computer language to understand a relative reality because it's two or more. And so with that in mind, let's go on to Shariputra, one of the famous disciples of the Buddha. Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness, Emptiness does not differ from form. One does not differ from zero. Zero does not differ from one. 
Form then is emptiness. One then is zero. Emptiness then is form. Zero then is one. Sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness are also like this. Now, form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness are the five skandhas. That's what makes up a human being. And that's in itself one talk. So I'm going to keep it simple. We're just going to go zero and one. We're going to go form and emptiness. And now we get into the third paragraph. Shariputra. All dharmas are marked with emptiness. All ones are marked with zero. Not born and not dying. Not stained and not pure. Not gaining and not losing. Therefore, within emptiness, there is no form. Therefore, within zero, there is no one. No sensation, perception, volition, or consciousness. No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. No form, sound, smell, taste, touch, or dharmas. No realm of sight till we come to no realm of consciousness. No ignorance and no ending of ignorance till we come to no old age and death and no ending of old age and death. No suffering, origination, extinction, or path. No wisdom and no attainment with nothing to attain. Now what he's doing here, or what the sutra is doing here, it's pointing in the direction of ultimate reality, but ultimate reality reality cannot be spoken or understood intellectually, because in order to speak we have to have two or more. In order to understand intellectually, we have to have two or more. If there is simply emptiness or one, we can't comprehend that intellectually. So in the sutra, what they're doing is they're pointing at this ultimate reality. Now, what I've come to understand is that this ultimate absolute reality is sort of like a coin. So you have a coin, and you have heads, and you have tails. And so far in the sutra, the heads do not have the tails. The tails do not have the heads. They talk about what this is and what this is, but they are pointing at the coin itself. They're saying, don't get caught up in one side or the other. Don't be a lefty or a righty. Choose the middle path. Choose the path that the coin resides in. Now, a couple days ago, on channel 13.4, Star Trek, the original Star Trek was on. And one of my favorite episodes where they had these two guys and their faces were painted black and white, right down the middle, white side, black side. And they hated each other. And Captain Kirk said, how can you hate each other? You come from the same planet. You're of the same species. And one of the guys says, oh, no, look carefully. He has white on the right. I have black on the right. We're different. I hate his difference. And when I first saw this back in the good old days uh, in the 60s, I didn't really get it. You know, and, and now after all the years of living and watching politics and watching the world, yeah, you know, we always spot the differences. Rarely do we spot the similarities. And the differences 
we get fixated on as being either better or worse. And so this was a perfect episode of Star Trek. If you get a chance to see it, I don't remember what the name of it is, but it's, it was fun. And I'm going, yeah, you know, that's it. That's it. It's, they're not looking at the person. They're looking at one side or the other, what they represent or don't represent. And oftentimes that's how we look at the world. What does the world mean to us? What have we picked up? What do we see? What do we understand as being true and not true? You know, and, and again, this is the dualistic picture that we see and we're caught in, and it's ultimately not the real truth. So the real truth, the truth itself, the ultimate truth is that we don't know. Because none of our sense stores can pick it up. We don't know what the ultimate reality is because we can't see it. We can only see things that can be described dualistically with tall or small, light or dark, good or bad, skillful, unskillful. We can put that into the box. But if we try to take all of that out of the box and see what's left, we can't see anything. So the Heart Sutra, at one level, is pointing us into the direction of ultimate reality beyond duality, beyond dualism, beyond good and bad. And we can experience it, but we can experience it in meditation. And, and if you think about your meditation practice, and you're sitting quietly, and all of a sudden this ego personality starts to settle a bit, like muddy water placed on a placed on a counter. And if the water is still enough, the mud goes to the bottom and the water becomes clear. And if we can sit long enough and let our mind still like the muddy water, we can become clear and we can experience, we can know, but we can't understand. And that's what I find so fascinating about Zen. And And when you hear the Zen masters of old try to explain what they've experienced, it's it's a haiku, it's poetry, it's insanity, it's beyond duality, it's beyond language, and they're oftentimes using the language of poetry rather than the language of prose to share with the reader or the listener what they've come to understand as being truth. Now, if you've ever had a chance to listen to a, a, a Zen Dharma talk, oftentimes I find it makes no sense at all. And it sort of short-circuits all my intellectual prowess, if you will, what little I have. And, and I'm going, what the hell did they talk about? What are they trying to say? What's the point they're trying to make? And over and over again, I came to the conclusion, I haven't got a clue. I don't know what they're trying to say. And if I did understand what they're trying to say, it wouldn't be what they're trying to say. So the idea, I suppose, according to the Heart Sutra, is we have to get to that very sensitive place that we all have inside of us before language covers up what's being viewed what's being looked at. Now, 
a quick story. I sometimes go to museums and art galleries. I find them fascinating. But I never want to go with someone who knows what in, it's in there, who, who, who has the history of the artwork, and you can hardly wait to share it with you. And here you are looking at this beautiful work of art, and in your ear is someone who is just point by point telling you what you're looking at. And the more they say, the more blind I become. And pretty soon, I can only see the words they used in the art, and not the art itself. So I rather enjoy going and not looking at what I'm seeing. And if I'm curious then, afterwards, I'll go Google it and say, oh, yeah, okay, that's what I was watching. That's what I was looking at. That's what it means, according to the, the critics and the, and, the, and the art connoisseurs. But to me, it was just a direct experience of light and dark and color and form and maybe sound. It's a direct experience of my sense stores coming into contact with something before all the concepts arise. So when's the last time you looked at something and didn't know what it was? Did it drive you crazy? Or did you just sort of sit there and, and say to yourself, I wonder what that is. I wonder how you can use it. I wonder if it's useful at all. Or is it something that somebody threw away because they stopped using it? You know, those, those kind of moments are so special. So next time it happens to you, don't be in a hurry to figure out what it is. Just soak it up because that's the direct experience before the overlay happens. Before, before the map is shown to you. And then you can no longer see the territory or the menu. And you're eating the food and you, you say, I wonder what this is. I want to order it next time too. So you look at the menu so you have a word or a concept that you can use the next time to have the same experience. But what would happen if you're just eating it and you're going, wow, my, 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 my sense doors, my taste buds, my nose, my smell really like this. I have a pleasant feeling arising from something I don't know what the heck it is. I don't know if it's nutritious. I don't know if it's filled with sugar or carbohydrates. I don't know what it is. But it was a wonderful experience while it lasted. And then you finally look at the label and you say, oh my God, what did I just consume? I'll be dead by morning. But in that moment, it was just a wonderful experience. So the Heart Sutra is really encouraging us to go... Don't get caught up in left or right or relative or ultimate. Don't, that's not it. That's not the coin. That's just one side or the other of the coin. Find the coin. The Heart Sutra continues. Because the Bodhisattva follows the perfect wisdom, the mind has no hindrance. And having no hindrance, there is no fear. And far from all fantasy, there is dwelling in nirvana. So finally we get to that word nirvana. It took us, and we're almost down the page now, and finally we come to nirvana. Every form of Buddhism, every school of Buddhism has the ultimate goal as being nirvana. So let me give you an easy soundbite to describe nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering while you're alive. Nirvana is the end of karma while you're alive. Nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. 
so you'll never have to suffer again. Never again. So, how many times have we been reborn so far? Infinite. Infinite. And how many times in our life have we suffered? Infinite. Infinite. We don't suffer all the time, thankfully, or we'd all be committing suicide tomorrow. But we suffer enough to be uncomfortable. We, we suffer enough to want things to be different than they are. We suffer enough to say, I'm not going to come to a place of acceptance with the way this is because I know it could be better. I was taught in school. I was told by my parents. I've observed my peer groups. It can always be better. And the truth is, it can. But the problem with being better is that changes too. So it gets better for a while, and then it gets worse for a while, and then it gets better for a while. And eventually we just come to look at life as just, well, that's what life is. Life is filled with suffering, or discomfort, or dis-ease, or it's filled with change all the time. And there's nothing I can cling or grasp onto to hold it from not changing, because the nature of the world is change. So, nirvana, nirvana, finally, is the end of that suffering, the end of that dis-ease, the end of our karma. Now, what's the problem with karma? The problem with karma for a Buddhist is that's the only thing that migrates lifetime to lifetime. And in a way, that's probably good. I would not the way, like the way I look to migrate into my next lifetime. I'd like to look different next time, maybe a little better, maybe a little more hair, something different, just to make the life seem better until it gets worse again. So we don't physically go to the next lifetime. There's nothing inside of us, and I'm going to use the word soul. The Buddha said, well, I don't know if there is a soul or not a soul, but that's not what migrates to the next lifetime for a Buddhist. It's your karma, man. Your karma keeps going on. And how much good karma do you have? We don't know. We don't know how good we were the last lifetime or five lifetimes ago. We don't know how caring we were or how compassionate we were. So we have no clue. We could have just been jerks for the last 10 lifetimes and done some of the worst stuff ever. And then the next lifetime, payback. And we have the worst lifetime and die at two years old. Because, not because we're two years old, but because we had hundreds of lifetimes that weren't very good. We weren't very skillful. We caused people to suffer a lot. And we don't know. We can't remember. Now, having said that, we need to be careful, too. We can't look at somebody who has a short life and say it's their karma. Because there are so many other factors that go into either killing us or keeping us alive. It's never one thing. Remember, it's never one thing and it's never nothing. It's a combination of things that come together that allow us to continue to live and prosper and grow old with wisdom. Not one thing, many things. Okay, so once the karma ends... In our nirvana, we can't ever be reborn again. The Buddha at one point said, I teach the path to immortality. But he wasn't telling us, I teach the path so you don't have to die. I teach the path so you don't have to be reborn again. 
so you don't have to go through all the suffering you go through in every lifetime, shedding the tears for all the things that were lost and all the people that were lost and all the circumstances that never turned out to be very good. Those tears kept flowing. So I'm teaching you how not to go through that again. So what is nirvana after death? Is it like heaven? You know what? The Buddha never went into great detail about what it was. I would doubt it's like heaven. I would doubt you get to see your old dogs and cats and maybe relatives and friends. And in a way, I'm happy that that's the case. Because maybe one lifetime is enough. And maybe I don't need to see him ever again. (laughs) I have the memories. But I think nirvana is a radical afterlife. I don't think it's form, but I don't think it's formless. Huh? Heart Sutra. I don't think it's either of those things. I think we're talking about the coin now. I think nirvana is the coin. And because we can't see the coin, but only one side or the other, we can't intellectually understand what nirvana might be. But the Buddha said it is extreme peace. Peace. Wow. You know, after all the turmoil that we have in the big city of Los Angeles and all the living and dying that we go through every day when you watch the news and yesterday three people were shot to death at a bar and Ventura Boulevard, and you just go, man, man, where's the peace? I want peace. And nirvana is the ultimate peace. Nirvana means you can be in any situation and be in peace. That when the Buddha taught for 45 years, he just, he, he walked around and he just, you know, he was in peace, even though the world was filled with suffering and change and, and people were starving. And, but he was in peace and he could respond to them in a very skillful way because he wasn't affected by the circumstances he found himself in. So nirvana while you're alive is a true blessing. It allows you to live and prosper and be at peace in any situation. Nirvana after life allows you to exist in a very unique way without birth and without death. Now, Somebody says to me, well, I can show you how not to be born and how not to die. Now I'm thinking, what the hell are you talking about? Not to be born and not to die. Everything on this planet had a beginning. It had a start. We call it birth. Everything started. And everything has an expiration date. Everything has to stop existing at a certain point. And, and that's samsara. That's the planet. That's the world we live in. And the Buddha was saying, but you know what? There's something else. I have rediscovered the path, the Four Noble Truths, to that something else. And I call that something else nirvana. So, I don't want to use the word faith, but you know, you can have confidence that what the Buddha is teaching us and telling us and encouraging us to do is something that's skillful and will, will reduce our suffering and ultimately end our suffering. Okay, last paragraph. Therefore know that the Prajnaparamita, the great wisdom, is the great holy mantram, the great bright mantram, the wisdom mantram, the unequaled mantram, which can destroy all suffering, 
truly real and not false. So, he gave the perfect wisdom mantra, which goes, Gate, Gate, Para, Gate, Para, Samgate, Bodhi, Svaha, said three times. Gone, gone, gone beyond to the other shore, the shore of samsara and the shore of nirvana. And his teachings are the raft that take us from one shore to the other. So this is an overly simplified explanation of the Heart Sutra. There literally are books with many pages written about the Heart Sutra and what it means. But this is Sunday you got 25 minutes. You can only do so much. But I wanted to share with you the excitement of the idea that every time you understand something, you're missing the point. <laughs> because you understand it only because you have a language and you have experience and, and, you, and you are using that to give meaning to what's going on. But I have to say, ultimately, there probably is no meaning, and it probably has little or no value. It's simply the process of life, the miracle that life is, and the process we find ourselves in. And now there's a way that we don't have to suffer through life. We can be peaceful. We can be helpful. And we can know that the rest of eternity is taken care of. We don't have to worry about going to heaven, we don't have to worry about going to hell because we're going to nirvana. Does anybody have any comments or questions on what I've said? Is anybody really hip to getting into nirvana? Anybody feel excited about that proposition? Okay, Nick, are you there? Hello, Bunting. Hello. Ah. Thank you. I can. I can. Thanks for your talk. I always appreciate your your take on things. Um, I had I read the Heart Sutra for many years and chanted the the the, the mantra, and I never had any idea what any of it ever meant. <laughs> and uh, for a, a brief moment at the end of your talk, I I had full realization, and then I and then of course you come in with the the other punch, and and I and I have no idea what it means. I have no idea what this means at all. When I thought I really had it, and further investigation. Uh, I had a question about, uh, if you don't mind, I have a question about um, uh, uh, wise concentration and wise effort as it relates to like my meditation. And at one point, you you told me um, or told us that like um, like the daily practice was kind of like brushing brushing my teeth. It's not very exciting, but it has to be done. And I have a daily meditation practice, and man, oh man, it has gotten really boring. Um, and my mind now is, um, I'm feeling like very cluttered. It's not, I'm not thinking anything bad. I don't feel like I have to like, use wise effort to like sublimate like, you know, bad thoughts or anything like that. But it's just like, I, I'm basically making lists of uh, how I'm going to work out tomorrow. And uh, um, so... I don't know. Is there anything that you can offer? Anything that you can say that might might help a little bit with my meditation? Yeah, I think you're making progress, Nick. If if nothing is happening, that's good. The problem with when something does happen that's spectacular, 
and even hard to explain or understand, is you get attached to it, and you want to do it over and over and over again. The last thing you want to do over and over and over again is something boring, something that seems not to be going anywhere. But you know what? That kind of wisdom that comes out of continuing to do it, not because you have to and not because you want to, but doing it anyway, that kind of wisdom will give you a big payoff. You know, because most people are motivated by either feeling good or not wanting to feel bad. And that motivation continues through our whole life. But you're finding a place now where there's neither one or the other. And yet you're still figuring out how to do it. And that's cool. That's, that is progress. So in the beginning, I had a lot of wonderful experiences. And, and now I have none. <laughs> and those wonderful experiences got me started and kept me going until it was okay to have none. Until it was okay not to have bright lights flash and trash. It's just, okay, so what am I going to do? I'm going to sit. What's going to happen? I don't know. Is it going to be good or bad? I don't care. And then you, then you get up and you continue your day. And when I brush my teeth, it's not exciting at all, Nick. I don't have great joy in brushing my teeth, though I do save money by not going to the dentist. But it's just something I've learned for the last few decades to do every day because that's the thing to do. So it is like brushing your teeth or something you do in, in, in repetition that seems to have no final outcome. It, it never ends. There's no, there's no ultimate goal that you're going to reach in your meditation other than meditation. You know, it, it doesn't end. The Buddha, after he achieved his nirvana, meditated for the rest of his life. Now, did he have to do that? I don't think so. But there must have been something good about it, or he wouldn't have done it. And maybe I shouldn't use the word good, but there must have been something about it that encouraged him to continue doing it for the rest of his life. Maybe physically, maybe it, it brings our body back into balance. Because he, he had achieved nirvana, so he had a perfect mind, perfect consciousness. But he had an old body towards the end. He had, you know, back aches and his knees didn't work very good and they didn't have any buses or planes, so he kept walking around and, and sometimes had to sit and rest because he got tired. I'm thinking, how could the Buddha get tired? He's the Buddha. Well, the Buddha had a body. He had an earthly body. He had transformed his consciousness into, if you want to call it, a heavenly state of mind, a pure state of mind. But his body was just old, you know? And so as I get old and as you get old and as all of us get old, we're going to have to say, yeah, you know, I've been working on my mind now for a whole lot of years and my consciousness is getting better because of my meditation, but it's not doing a damn thing for my body. So maybe I need to do like Qigong or yoga, or maybe I need to walk around the block a few times to keep the body working so I can do nothing with my mind. So I can sit there and meditate and nothing ever happens. And, and then I know I've made progress. As soon as something happens, yeah, oh man, red flag. Uh-oh, I saw, I saw bright interior lights. I want to go back and do it again. It was so cool, you know. And we have to go, no, 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 that's, that's it. That's, it's trying to distract us. Whatever, I mean, if you believe in Mara, Mara is the great tempter. 
who sits on your shoulder? If you understand the concept of Mara, Mara is always trying to distract you from your meditation practice. He, she, it, whatever Mara is to you, is saying to you, you've got no hope. You can't possibly do it. Why don't you go watch TV? There's some really good shows on right now. Or your laundry hasn't been done in three weeks. Go and do your laundry, you know? And, 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 and you're going to say, Mara, Mara, I'm going to sit here and meditate. And I don't care what you tell me. If you want me to change my job as I'm meditating, I'm not going to change my job when I'm meditating. If you want me to go traveling, go on a European vacation, Mara, I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going to sit here and meditate. And I don't care how you tempt me. And, and the wonderful story of the Buddha becoming enlightened or achieving nirvana with all the Mara sending his armies of temptation to try to distract. So I look at it as like a big distraction. When my mind starts thinking about all sorts of stuff that's not relevant to my meditation practice, I'm going, Mara, come on, man, give me a break. I'm tired. I don't want to have to think about all that. I just want to sit here and find inner peace. Can you just give me a break for 10 minutes, man? Can you just let me be? And of course, Mara then will just jump on it and make it even worse. But that's how it works. We're always in this sort of struggle to, to find this place of balance that, that, that is filled with peace and joy. And it's there. And sometimes it comes because we're bored. And sometimes it comes because we're not distracted. There's all sorts of reasons why it's not there. And there's a few reasons why it will be there ultimately. So hang in there, Nick. Look at it as progress with nothing happening. <laughs> That's what I like about the Heart Sutra, you know? It's just like, ultimately, it's zero and one. So what do you want, what dance do you want to do today, you know? Do you want to do the one dance or the zero dance? You know? Thanks. <laughs>